Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Um, When I finish, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you may follow me by saying, thanks be to God. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you all are doing well. Uh, My name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the uh, elders, one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church, and I am so thankful that uh, I could be here with all of you all this morning to, uh, as always, sing praises to God, uh, to uh, dive into His Word together, and just just be able to love on one another, uh, be able to lift each other up. What a blessing it is to be able to do that. Um, and so uh, I pray that uh, you all just relish this time together this morning. Um, what, a, what a beautiful thing it is for us to be able to come together like this in, in, in peace and just enjoy each other's company and point each other to Christ. And so I hope you all have a, a wonderful time of that this morning. But we are, of course, pressing forward in our study on the book of Hebrews. And as we have said before, this book was most likely actually a sermon that was given to a group of mostly Jewish believers that was then uh, written down and then kind of distributed out. And as we have said before, this book or this sermon was given for the primary purpose of magnifying the person and the deity of Jesus Christ and to encourage these first century believers and therefore us as well to hold fast to the faith. And last week we spoke of Jesus being greater than than even Moses, than even Moses as a builder of a house, is greater than the house itself. And so in other words, as great as Moses was, he was simply a a part of the house of God, while Jesus is the one who actually built the house. And so therefore, he is worthy of more honor because he owns the house. He, He rules it and he provides for it. And so he deserves all of the glory and all of the honor. Now, last week, as we looked at verse 6, and you'll also see verse 6 on the screen as well. As we looked at verse 6, we saw the beautiful reality that all true believers are the house of God. We are the house of God. But then verse 6 also introduces an if. An if. And this if is so important 
that the preacher spends the entirety of the rest of chapter 3 explaining it in an effort to, to clarify what this if actually means. And since this if is, is so important in verse 6 and, and for the rest of the book, even though we took a look at it last week, kind of just briefly, I want to take another look at it before we move into the next group of verses. But first, as always, let us pray for the Lord to be our help this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so thankful that we can come together again. As a, as a body of Christ, as your body, Lord, as your bride. God, how wonderful is that? And Lord, I pray, God, we're going to be talking about some, some difficult things, Lord, this morning, some difficult passages. So God, I pray that you help us just set aside our own feelings and our own, our own emotions so that we can humble ourselves before your word and let that be our guide this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit aids us in that. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 6. And if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We can, we can either get you one or you can look at the screen right there. It says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, as we said last week, there are some believers, some, some brothers and sisters in Christ, who would take this passage, uh, along with a couple other difficult verses in Hebrews, as scriptural evidence for the possibility of a believer losing their faith. Now, I gave a few scriptural references last week to show you that I, I don't believe that that interpretation of this verse actually harmonizes with the rest of Scripture, the testimony of Scripture. But let's look uh, a little bit more closely at this verse because, again, the rest of chapter 3 is an expansion on this verse. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice is that verse 6 does not say that you will become the house of God, that you'll, that you'll someday make it into the house of God. Rather, it says quite plainly that right now you are the house of God if you hold fast to your confidence and boasting in your hope. And so this is the present reality of true believers. You are, if you are a true believer, you are a house of God. And we talked last week how, how that is meant to be understood corporately. This, this church, this body of Christ, this body of believers, not, this, not just this building, but the body of believers coming together is a house of God. And the presence of Christ is here in a mysterious way that we can't always fully understand. But not only that, but you individually are also a house of God. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So those are the ways that we're meant to understand that. Now, what is clearer in the Greek, but, but not as clear in the English, is the nature of this if that we find in verse 6. But let me try to explain it. Now, as you can tell from my thick southern drawl, I'm from the south, right? And when you live in the south, there are a lot of words that sound very different than how you would probably pronounce them in the rest of the country, right? 
Sometimes you, you actually question if there's, they're actually saying words when you're down south. Like, I don't, know, I don't know if that's actually... Let me check the dictionary for that one. You won't find most of the words. So verse 6 would be like saying, you are a southerner if you say can't instead of can't, right? You're a southerner if you say oil instead of oil. And so if you're from, from Tennessee, where I'm from, for instance, and you made your way up to Vermont, and you said those words with that accent, it would be evidence of what? That, that I'm a Southerner, right? Now, I don't say I'm that, that thickly, so I'm saying. Talk to Ethan. He'll, he'll really bring it out. He'll say it, yeah. But I, but I hope you kind of see where I'm going with this. The holding fast to your confidence and boasting in your hope until the end is evidence that you are truly a member of the house of God. It is evidence of that. Verse 6 could be translated like this. If we hold fast, if we hold fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope to the end, we show that we are God's house. If we hold fast to our hope to our confidence and boasting in our hope to the end, we show that we are God's house. Now, if you skip down to verse 14, skipping down to verse 14, we find a sentence very much like verse 6. It says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And this verse is is partially meant to throw our minds back to the very first verse of chapter 3. This verse is is throwing our minds back to the fact that all those who are in Christ, all those who share or partake uh, are in, or sorry, all those uh, who are believers share and partake in the heavenly calling. You remember that from a few weeks ago? We share and, and partake in a heavenly calling. And if you remember, that heavenly calling from Jesus is, is, the, is our shepherd, is this shepherd calling us from heaven, beckoning his sheep to come and follow him. And his voice is calling us to follow where he leads. And, and friends, where is he leading? He's, he's leading us to glory, right? That is where He is leading us. He is leading us to our heavenly home that will be void of of darkness, of of pains and fears and and the temptations that that bombard us in this fallen world. That's where He's leading us. He is leading us to a future that that shines brighter than the sun and that is described so beautifully as, as rest. How wonderful is that? Rest is such an amazing theme all throughout Scripture. Having rest. How many of us seek that? Rest rest for our bodies. Rest for our our minds. Rest for our our broken hearts. And there's there's a beautiful painting by the 19th century painter named John Martin, and it's called The The Plains of Heaven, which he uh, depicts what he imagines our our final home to look like, the new earth. 
And it's a, it's a beautiful landscape filled with these, these rolling hills and, and majestic mountains and, and the believers gathering all together. It's, it's beautiful. But as beautiful as that imagery from, from Martin is, friends, it won't be even worthy of any kind of comparison to the beauty and wonder that we are going to experience in the life to come. Because as, as wonderful as that painting is, what it cannot convey what it cannot convey is the unfettered presence that we will enjoy with our Savior. No, no painting can, can bring that forth. And we will get to walk with Him in the, in the cool of the day, right? That is the true glory that we will have. As wonderful as, as the promise is that we're going to have these new bodies that are going to be free from all the, all the rot and all the disease that we experience now, even though we'll be fully sanctified, where we won't, we won't be tempted by sin anymore, we'll finally be totally free from that. All of that is crowned by the fact that we get to walk with the King of glory forever. How awesome is that? Our future hope is bound to the King of glory whom we have come to be partakers in, whom we share in. But friends, what is the evidence that you have truly become a partaker in Christ? Verse 14 says, if indeed you hold your original confidence firm to the end, that proclamation of faith, that, that knowledge, that, that unwavering faith, that you are truly a partaker in Christ. Holding fast to the end is the fruit of being a true partaker in Christ. And so what would the inverse to verse 14 be? The, what, would, what would be the, the backwards image of that? If you do not hold fast to the end, you have not come to share in Christ. <coughs> As one theologian says, it is wrong to say if we do not hold fast to our assurance, then even though we have once been partakers in Christ, nevertheless, now we have lost our part in Him. That is not what these verses are saying. That's not what the rest of the testimony of Scripture says. Friends, remember Jesus' own words in John 6, 38-39. Jesus says, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. This is the good pleasure, the desire of my Father, the unchanging will of the Heavenly Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I will raise Him up on the last day. Who in these verses from Jesus is responsible for seeing a believer through to the end? Not, not the believer himself, though we certainly are commanded to obey. Don't, don't hear me wrong there. But Jesus is the one who keeps us to the end. And so failing to hold fast does not show that you've lost your salvation. But friends, it, it would be uh, uh, an evidence that you never truly possessed it. And so the point of verse 6 and verse 14 is, is to say to the believer, hold tightly. 
Hold securely to your confidence that all Jesus has given to you and and all that He has promised you is true. It is true. In order to show, to prove, to evidence, to demonstrate that you are a partaker in the Savior. And not only that, but you can rejoice. You can rejoice because He will keep you through to the end. These are the truths of which verse 14 and verse 6 are pointing us to. That we have to hold on to as we move on into the rest of this passage. So with that in mind, let us do just that. Verse 7 begins by saying, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, I want to briefly just kind of take a, take a minute and, and look at that just one verse or that one little part of the verse Because it it points out how you will soon see, going into verse 11, uh, which is a quote from Psalm 95, you will soon see how Scripture testifies to itself, what what it views itself as. Now, other places within the New Testament, when quoting from the Old, it will say something to the effect of, as it is written. Right? Have you seen that before? The New Testament author saying, as it is written, or maybe some will say, some passages will say, as spoken by the prophet or something along those lines. But that is decidedly not what the preacher of Hebrews says. That's not how he words it. Even though this is a direct quote from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, he decides to say, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And the reason why this is so important is because this is a reminder to us who the ultimate author of Scripture actually is. While the Bible was written by human authors, and and you can see that clearly from the different writing styles that are used and the different personalities that that even come out in the writings. If you're reading a, a letter from Paul, you can tell it's a letter from Paul, right? But through what we call divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit. Every word, every single word that is written within Scripture is the precise word that God desired the human authors to write. And this is why 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that the entirety of Scripture is theonoustos, which is a fancy word that means breathed out by God is breathed out by God. Meaning that Scripture comes from the very inward person of God Himself. And therefore, it is our ultimate source and standard when it comes to God, when it comes to man and salvation and everything else with which the Bible speaks. Everything. It is our authority. And this is why we at Redeemer take very seriously the authority of the Bible. We take very seriously what's called the infallibility of the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible. And this is why what God's Word says is what is to dictate our doctrine. Meaning it is to dictate what we believe and teach. And then that that doctrine should then, therefore, influence how, how we worship. And friends, how we feel. The problem that we see in many churches is that they have flipped that train around. And how you feel becomes the ultimate source of authority, and therefore Scripture must submit to how you feel things should be. 
God should, should submit to how you feel, how he should act in the world. And friends, let me tell you, that is idolatry. That is nothing but idolatry. That is putting yourself at a place higher than God. Saying to him that I don't care that this is what you say because my way of thinking is higher than yours. And friends, this is how false teaching begins. This is how false worship of a false God begins. And so we would do well to remember that what is written down within Scripture are the very words of God and they are authoritative. And we must set aside our pride and we must humble ourselves before the Lord. And if we come across a teaching that we don't like within Scripture, on whatever subject it may be, even the most hot button of topics, I mean, the problem is not with Scripture. It's with us. It doesn't need to change. We do. And so what the Bible says, the Holy Spirit is saying. So again, with verse 6 in mind, and with the exhortation to hold fast and remembering that what we're about to read is what the Holy Spirit is saying. Let's look again at verses 7 going into verse 11. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So again, these verses from really from 8 to 11 are all a quote from Psalm 95. But Psalm 95 and therefore Hebrews 3 verses 8 through 11, are actually pointing far back to two events that happened in the history of Israel, specifically two revolts that happened against Moses during Israel's wandering in the desert. And Psalm 95 sort of kind of combines both of these events. It doesn't make a hard line between them. It doesn't go from saying that I'm talking about this event and going into this one, but he's really kind of mashing them together to speak to the overall rebellious nature of Israel while they were in the wilderness. And so I want us to start by looking at verses, uh, or really verse 8, which is recalling a time from the book of Exodus. Now, if you remember, Exodus is, is all about God's leading of Israel out of slavery through these, these displays of, of immense power. Now, when you get to Exodus 13 and 14, you will read how Pharaoh had pursued the fleeing Israel, trying to capture them again and, and to bring them back. But the Lord made passage for them through the Red Sea, which, which then, once Israel was safely on the other side, you had uh, Egypt coming through the Red Sea to, to try to capture them. Then you had the Red Sea just swallowing up the entirety of the Egyptian army. Right? You remember that? It's a pretty famous Charlton Heston, I think, was there. But then when you skip ahead to chapter 16, you see that the people arrived in the desert across from the Red Sea, finally free, right? Finally out from underneath the thumb of Egypt. And then what do they do? What do they do? They, they just immediately start complaining, right? 
Listen to verse 2 through 3 in Exodus 16. It says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And when we look back to this passage, we can sometimes be amazed at this expression of ingratitude and unbelief from the Israelites who have just witnessed the amazing power of God delivering them from the agonizing and demeaning slavery under Egypt. And we, in our own hubris or in our, in our moral superiority, we think to ourselves that if I was in that crowd of Israel, I wouldn't have acted that way. Not, not me. I wouldn't have said those things. The, the heart posture that I would have had would have been one of, of gratitude and, and thankfulness. I wouldn't have been like the Israelites. But if we just spend a moment, just a moment, reflecting, which is something that sometimes we just don't do when we read Scripture. We don't sit and reflect for a moment. But if we did, if we looked at, at our own hearts, our own still still constant struggle with sin in this life, we might see that we can often demonstrate a very similar attitude on, on far less pretense than starvation and thirst in a desert wilderness. But we'll touch on that again a little bit more in a moment. But back to the Israelites. So instead of trusting the Lord to supply their needs and bring them to a better land, they just complained. And even when the Lord, in His grace and mercy, sent manna from heaven to feed them, the people continued to complain and engage in, in just petty disobedience. And then in chapter 17, they yet again confronted Moses in rebellion. They do it again. Now verse 8 in Hebrews 3 tells us that this time of the Israelites being in the wilderness was a time of testing. It was a time of testing. God had delivered His people and now was testing their allegiance to Him with these difficult travels in the desert. And we see how miserably they failed, right? And their hearts had hardened to the point where they believed that Moses was leading them out of Egypt was, was actually a death sentence. And this, this mob became an angry mob and began to even threaten to stone him. And so again... God was yet gracious. He was gracious. And He sent Moses to strike a rock with his staff, and water came from the rock to satisfy this angry mob. And what is really interesting is that Moses then named that particular place Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah, which means testing and rebellion. That's what Moses named this place, testing and rebellion. And these are the, actually the two words that we see used in verse 8 of Hebrews 3, right? Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of testing, in the wilderness. When the difficulties came, when the time of testing had, had finally come, many of the people of Israel did not continue in their faith, but rather they hardened their hearts and they turned to, to sinful rebellion. 
Now, while the quote from Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3.8 pointed to incidents in Exodus, the quotation from Psalm 95 that is used in Hebrews 3, verses 9 through 11, so our passage, verses 9 through 11, that quotation is, is kind of pointing us to a different Old Testament passage, Numbers 14. Numbers 14, which records an, an even greater revolt against the Lord. Now, in chapter 13 of the book of Numbers, the people of Israel finally, they finally made it to the promised land. They finally got there. But before they could enter, God told them to send out one scout from each of the twelve tribes that, that made up the entirety of Israel. And when the scouts came back, at, at first everything seemed, seemed great, right? They said that the, the land they were about to enter into was a land filling, or flowing rather, with milk and honey. It was, it was a paradise. But then they gave the bad news and said that the people who lived within that land were were far too strong, and the cities were, were massive and, and far too fortified. And the consensus, consensus among the scouts was that going into this land and, and trying to take it over would be a, a suicide mission. But there were, there were two scouts, just two, Joshua and Caleb, who said, no, guys, we can, we can do this. We can do it. And Joshua even pleads with the people of Israel saying, listen, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't rebel right now. We shouldn't fear the people who are over there because even though they may look strong and even though their cities are, are large and they're fortified, guys, the Lord is with us. The Lord's with us. And so, so what do we have to fear? Nonetheless, Numbers 14 records a general revolt against the Lord's rule. The people cried out that the very God who had delivered them from Egypt now sought to kill them in Canaan, in the very land that they were promised. And they refused to obey. They refused to go forth into the promised land and even set out to stone Joshua and Caleb who had stood up against their unbelief. And it was at this moment that the glory cloud of the Lord, which represented His, His presence, appeared at the tabernacle, this, this tent and what ensued was a very sobering moment. Numbers 14.11 says, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And Moses pleaded with the Lord for the lives of his people, arguing that if God struck down the Israelites right then and there, his name would be scandalized among the nations. Moses begged God to glorify Himself by forgiving the people. And verse 19 says from Moses, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And so God did spare them. In His mercy, He did spare them. But He also punished them. As we read in Hebrews 3, 11. And again, quoting from Psalm 95, the preacher recalls God's terrible words. He says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now the nation of Israel would enter the promised land. But none of that, that rebellious generation would be left when that happened. 
Instead, they would wander for 40 years in the desert. And only when the last of those rebellious adults had died, leaving only Joshua and Caleb, who trusted the Lord, were their children permitted to enter into the land. Now the big question that we've got is what is the relationship between those far and away events of Israel rebelling in the desert and those first century Jewish believers and even modern day believers like you and I? What's what's the bridge there? Why Why does the author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, pick those specific passages to quote from? And the answer really is is manyfold. The answer is that like the Israelites, every single man or woman that has come to salvation in Christ has been delivered by God from from slavery. From slavery to to sin. From slavery to to the fear of death. We've We've been freed. Those chains have been completely broken away from us. And like Israel, we are headed toward the promised land. To to a wonderful land of promise, just as we spoke of earlier. But for the Israelites to get to that promised land, to get to Canaan, they had to first cross the Jordan River. And often that crossing of the Jordan River is compared to our own passage through death, after which we enter into our heavenly inheritance. But what I believe that this passage in Hebrews 3 is really trying to point us to is that just as the Israelites endured a time of testing in the desert, so too in this present life that we are now in, on this earth, is a time of our testing. Is a time of our testing. Brothers and sisters, this right now is our time in the wilderness. And it comes with difficulty and often sorrow and pain. One of the things that we have got to recognize, despite what the health and wealth preachers will say, despite what the name it, claim it, false teachers will try to tell you, we are not yet living in the promised land. We're not there yet. We are in the wilderness, and this is crucial for us to know. If we're to have a a truly firm grasp on what the Christian life means here and now. And this helps us to answer questions like, why does God allow things to go wrong in my life? Or why are, why are things so hard? And the answer is, is that we're not yet in the promised land. We're not there yet. We still live in the wilderness, and today is the day of testing and the day of rest, full and complete rest for the entirety of our being is still yet to come. And this is a hard reality that we often like to skip over when we think about what it means to be a Christian. Many will say that when you become a Christian, all of the problems of your life will simply just kind of just melt away, right? That's just not true. That's not true. Often, proclaiming Christ and standing firm in the faith actually brings to you more suffering and more difficulties than you may have otherwise experienced. This is what Jesus says Himself, right? And so every Christian can be sure that they will be tested by trials in this life. And these trials will manifest the reality of our faith or the lack thereof. The incredible theologian and pastor who was very prominent in the early 
to mid-20th century, a man by the name of A.W. Pink. He puts it very well. He says, testings reveal the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely, but, but are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord? Or are we instead complacently resting in His temporal, temporary mercies? And when the storm comes, it is not so much that we fail under it as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, of daily walking in dependency upon Him, is made evident. Our profession of faith will be either proved or disproved by our response to the trials that come up in life. Our responses to the difficulties, just like in the parable of the soils that Jesus told in Luke 8, will reveal to us if the seed of the gospel truly took root in our hearts and brought about within us the working of the Holy Spirit in true saving faith and new birth, conversion. Jonathan Edwards says, trials have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false and to cause the difference between them evidently to appear. And friends, this is why as long as we still live in this sinful and fallen worlds, now listen close, trials are good. Trials are good. Even though what might be bringing them about in our lives are not good, it is ultimately for our good that they are happening. Trials allow us to see those places in our lives where we have been depending on ourselves. Where we have been running to idols for comfort, for peace, for security. Where we have placed our trust in, in other people and not in the God who, who created everything. And that is James 1, 2-4, right? Is it not? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is what God does in trials. There is a certainty for true believers that trials will, in the end, produce steadfastness. That is not to say that, that, that backsliding is, is impossible or, or unthinkable, but that ultimately God uses trials to produce a work of steadfast faith in His people. And that is why we can have joy in the sufferings of life, even in, in the midst of the tears. And friends, the, the trials may even make you recognize that you never had truly placed your faith in Christ to begin with. Maybe you are making all of these proclamations of faith, but, but when a storm hits your life, you, you realize that you were uttering just, just empty phrases. And friends, this is why the preacher of Hebrews is exhorting us through quoting Psalm 95 to not be like Israel in the wilderness. Who, who just grumbled and complained and, and showed their hardness of hearts in the midst of the trials. 
Friends, even true believers can be tempted to harden their hearts when those testings, those times of testings come. When things go badly and we experience trouble, we can so often become, become afraid, right? Or if not afraid, maybe, maybe angry. We can do things like blame God or complain about our lot in life and we begin to doubt His power, we begin to doubt His love, and we begin to doubt His care. But the preacher of Hebrews is reminding us that the Israelites had a short memory. They had a very short memory. And they forgot the display of power and love that God showed in their deliverance. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, when the trials come and you are in the middle of the wilderness, do not forget the resurrection power that Jesus Christ displayed in your life. Remember that He lived and died so that He could replace that that hard heart of yours with a heart of flesh. And do what the preacher tells us to do in Hebrews 3, 1. Do you remember? It says, consider Christ. When the trials come, consider Christ. Focus your mind on Him. What did we say back then? Back when we were going over 3, 1. Don't be lazy in your thinking. Remember what He has done. Remember His past faithfulness. Remember His steadfast love. And do not harden your hearts. Verse 10 in our passage says, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. This is the same complaint that God made through the prophet Isaiah. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. How remarkable that these Israelites did not know God after all they had seen and heard and received from His hand. How could they have not known His ways? While they had enjoyed God's works, they had not reflected on Him. They have not truly loved Him. They were interested in what God did for them, but they weren't interested in God Himself. This is how, this is often how true unbelief reveals itself in those times of trouble. True belief says that, Lord, that you you can take everything from me. Everything. But I am satisfied because I know you. Unbelief says, Lord, I am unsatisfied by you. I need more. So let's pray that God uses the trials of our life to purge us from the temptations of unbelief to sanctify us from from those moments that all Christians, all Christians deal with at some point in their life where we are tempted to not trust God. John Newton knew that trials were necessary in this way in the Christian life. He said, trials are medicines. Trials are medicines which our gracious and wise physician prescribes because we need them. We need them. And he proportions the frequency and weight of them to what the case requires. The preacher then goes on in verse 12 and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in, uh, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, along with those holy brothers, the preacher addresses in verse 1. This verse implies that mixed in among them may be some who do not have hearts that have been made new. 
Rather, there may be some who are still enslaved to sin, that have a heart that is rooted in disbelief, that is destined to fall away from God, and who will not enter into the true rest which is found on the other side of glory. And so essentially, what the preacher is saying is that, listen, There may be unbelievers around you who may think that they are truly saved, but when the trials come, they will fall away from the faith, showing that they were never one of us, as 1 John 2 puts it. And therefore, in verse 13, he says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I believe the preacher here is telling us to do really kind of two things in one. On one hand, I believe that he is telling us to be aware if there are any unbelievers that are in our midst who might think that they are saved, but in reality have a hardened heart. And he is telling us to to, to warn them and and to let them know that, that sin may be deceiving them, may be blinding them, and that they need to repent and place their faith in Christ. And at the same time, I also believe that we are to take it as the preacher telling us that our duty to one another as believers in Christ is to lovingly hold each other accountable, to to preach the gospel to one another, to notice when we have brothers or sisters who are being shaken by the trials of life and to lift them up and point them to the promises and the trustworthiness of Jesus, so that they are not tempted to harden their own hearts for a time. As I look to wrap things up, friends, I know that I have not suffered near as much as I know many of you have suffered. But I have experienced suffering. And I know that I will experience it again. And one of the things that threatens to to drive a a stake of fear into my own heart is is simply not knowing what tomorrow's suffering might be. But friends, there is a peace that the Holy Spirit provides to my soul that is given to me as I think of the greater rest that awaits me as I cross over that Jordan River to be with my Savior. As Bunyan says, I seek a place that can never be destroyed. One that is pure and will never fade. Now friends, I seek my home. I seek my true home. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do not harden your heart even when the trials come. Because if you are truly a partaker in Christ, then He will be faithful to see you through and usher you into your glorious inheritance. Again, John Newton says, Faith upholds a Christian under all trials by assuring him that every painful dispensation is under the direction of his Lord. That chastisements are a token of his love. That the season, measure, and continuance of his sufferings are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good. And that grace and strength shall be afforded him according to his need. And for those of you who do not believe, I, I urge you this morning, do not harden your heart to the message of the gospel. To the message that, that friends, you, you are a sinner. Just like all of us. 
You are a, a rebel against God, but through faith, through faith that He lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of sins, friends, you too can enter into that rest. That rest that, that I don't deserve. The rest that, the rest that no one deserves. But through faith in Him, you can experience that. If we follow Him, looking to Him in faith and relying on His provision, even in the midst of the most painful moments of our lives, we will find goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Please pray with me. Lord, I am so thankful for your faithfulness. Because if it wasn't for your faithfulness to me, Lord, when the trials of this life hits, Lord, when the storms come, Lord, I know that I, if, it, if left to my own devices, I would not be faithful to you. And Lord, even when I do fall, when I do fall to temptation, when I do fall to fear and worry and anxiety and all of these things, in the midst of those trials. Lord, Your forgiveness shines through. Your goodness shines through. Your steadfast love and faithfulness to me shines through. And God, I'm so thankful for that. So Lord, this morning, God, I pray that You help us. Lord, while we are here in this wilderness, to not harden our hearts. To not be provoked to grumbling and complaining, but rather thankfulness, Lord. Thankfulness that, that even in the midst of, of suffering, Lord, you are still yet working a glorious good. Lord, emblazon that truth on our hearts. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.